Hey everyone, it's Franklin. It has been a wild last two weeks, and I just wanted to take a moment to say that Black Lives have always mattered at the Blacklist, and we hope that our work has and will continue to assert exactly that. And a critical part of that belief is not only listening to, but actively seeking feedback. So if you have any, you know where to find us. Without further ado, this episode was recorded before George Floyd's murder. May he rest in power. This is the Blacklist Podcast. I am one of your two hosts, Franklin Leonard, founder and CEO of the Blacklist. As always, joined by... Kate Hagan, director of community at the Blacklist. Today's guest is Alice Wu. I've been a fan of hers since her movie Saving Face was at Sundance. And then years later, 2018, the script for the half of it ends up on the annual Blacklist. It's a really fantastic conversation with Alice. We're going to talk about the half of it, which is now on Netflix, a really smart reinvention of the sort of teen romantic triangle movie. We're going to talk about what Alice was doing in her time away from the industry and what the journey back has been like for her as a queer Asian American filmmaker. And we're going to talk about some of the great cinematic influences, not just only on the half of it, but how Alice grew up watching movies in Chinese and how that shaped her love of cinema. To put a very fine point on it, Alice is cool AF. And this conversation was a heck of a lot of fun. We hope you enjoy it. Kate and I with Alice Wu. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So Alice, we love to begin every conversation by asking everybody the same question, which is, can you remember the first movie you ever saw in a movie theater? And we would love for you to set the scene of what that was like. Oh my God, that is such a great question. I do remember. And hilariously, it was Annie Hall by Woody Allen. And back then, I I just turned 50 last week. So I want to give some context to why that would have been the movie, but also that I was like seven or eight when it came out. And back then, like in the old days, movies would play in movie theaters for several months, right? Like this was not a... So I actually literally saw that movie, I remember at least three separate times Mainly because any time my parents went out to see a movie to watch something, they would put me in another movie that would be appropriate. And for whatever reasons, I kept picking Annie Hall. Like, I just loved that movie. But when I think about it now, it makes no sense to me. Because I I still love that movie. But when I saw it as an adult, I'm like, what? How on earth could I possibly? Like, what was I understanding in this movie? There's like... Well, so you were eight or nine. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm trying to... So your parents, you go, the parents go to the movie theater. They're going to go see the new. Yeah, they went to go see Foul Play film. with Goldie Hawn and Chevy right. Chase. That's one I remember. I don't remember <laughs> and, the others. Yeah, and they're and they they turn to eight year old you and they say, "What movie do you want to see?" And you were like, "Annie Hall." And they were like, "Great, have fun." Yeah. And were there no adults in the Annie Hall screening who saw the eight-year-old sitting alone that said, well, this is odd? That is a good question. Honestly, I don't think I had that level of, um, well, I wonder, and I'm not sure, but I wonder if I might have already developed a level of, uh, like a slightly tougher skin because we were immigrants. And I was so used to people thinking we were odd (laughs) anywhere we went that I think, you know, like, honestly, we'd go to the movie theater and it's mo- a lot of people there. Were, like, I think there already was sort of a, a sense of like, oh, this immigrant family's here. 
And then I suppose, you know, if I'm in the theater, like I, I think there, there's, I think I was just already used to being places where people thought I was out of place and I right. just kind of, you know, let it roll off me. Well, I'm also, and we'll get to the half of it, which Kate and I are very enthusiastic about as a preview of our response to the movie. I absolutely can see Ellie Chu at nine watching Woody Allen, like watching Annie Hall in a movie theater. Yeah. And I'm curious, was your family a movie family? It sounds like they were. They were and they weren't. Um, I wasn't allowed to watch TV growing up, so I read a ton of books. But the only thing I was allowed to watch were classic movies that they had curated, you know, which a lot of would show up in the film. Because we weren't, like, I wasn't allowed, we didn't watch any violence. Like, to this day, I'm still not desensitized to violence. And then we watched a lot of Chinese soap operas. So I think that kind of created a sense of, you know, for me, I probably watched a lot of things that were about love, for lack of a better word. Because if it's not a violent action film, a lot of films end up being about how you find love. And I do think that was formative for me. But the other thing I do remember after watching Annie Hall is there's a whole scene where they get high and they talk about smoking grass. And I was like, I remember going the next day to school and telling someone like, you can smoke grass. Like I was totally, (laughs) like I was a very literal kid. Like I was very, very literal. And like, yeah, but we actually tried to like- I was gonna, that was my next question. Like, did you, did you smoke- actual grass. How, well, how did that go for you? we didn't have matches because my mom was also, I, which is also a super funny thing. I was a latchkey kid and my mom was like, like I would come home, my mom was always like, do not touch any matches, which I thought that was funny that that was something she called out. And I was super paranoid about like, it really wasn't until I was a lot older that I was like, how would she know? But somehow in my head, I had decided, like, she would know. Which, actually, yeah. now that I think about my mom, it's actually possible she would know. So Yeah, the, uh, I, I've had the same processing with my mother as well, where it's like, well, how would she know if I... Yeah, she would have figured it out. I don't know how, but she would have. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, the... Uh, and so, yeah, no, we literally just took blades of grass. <laughs> And pretended to smoke them like we were super cool French people. That's what I remember. I was going to say, to be fair, Annie Hall was rated PG at the time of was its it release. Really? So anybody could go see Annie Hall. And I'm sure an eight-year-old, you were not the only eight-year-old in a, in a screening of uh, Annie Hall. No one can see my face right now, but my jaw's on the floor. I definitely did not realize that Annie Hall was rated PG. PG-13 did not exist. Oh, it's a very PG film. It's more PG than PG films are today, actually, because it's mainly just a lot of talking, you know? It's a, I, I think maybe I responded to just the warmth. Like there was something that was so sort of lovely to me about watching people connecting. I think I was probably responding to that. Do you consider that the movie that made you fall in love with movies or were there other films around that time? Oh gosh, I don't know if I would say just that movie. I mean, this is when I was a bit older. I was maybe 15 or 16, but I loved the movie My Life as a Dog. I actually went and saw that movie three times in the theater in two weeks. I love that movie so much. And certainly even earlier, like I did love a lot of the classic movies, many of which are actually in my film. But I, I think that might be a common thing for kids that don't quite know how to make a lot of friends. You know, mm-hmm. like when you're somebody who is maybe less extroverted. In my case, we moved every few years. And so I'd always have maybe one or two friends. Um, And honestly, sometimes that one or two friends, the only reason we were friends is because they too could not find friends. So we were just like, I don't know that we would otherwise be friends. So mostly what I was doing was reading a ton and having this like very rich interior kind of fantasy life. And then movies kind of gave this hope of like, someday when you become an adult, This could be, maybe that's why I like Annie Hall. Like this not very attractive guy somehow manages to score a super smart and hot woman. That's probably what it is. When I think about it, (laughs) that is probably what it was. Like, oh, Tootsie. By the way, Tootsie's another one. I freaking loved Tootsie. It's still my favorite movie of all time. And uh, that one, I actually, when I look back on it, I think literally Jessica Lange riding on a horse in that like montage slow motion is probably the first inkling I briefly thought, I am gay. And then I quickly repressed that thought. It's a good one. It's a good one to come out on, absolutely. What you've convinced me of, Alice, is that you and I definitely would have been friends in high school. What you're describing is near identically my high school experience as well. 
Yeah. Wait. Tell tell me. More. I mean, well, no, just this idea that like I was I was a blackhead in the deep south. I was really good at math. That does that isn't terribly conducive to a great social life. And uh, yeah, movies were my outlet, and it was like, oh, there's a world out there that one day you'll get to experience, and uh, this is your first peak of it. Yeah. So we would have been, yeah, it would have been like, all right, well, we're not going to a field to drink on Friday, so I guess we're gonna go see Nixon on a Friday night, the the weekend it comes out, which I actually did at the time. That's amazing. I, I really love that, and it makes me feel less lonely in this moment of pandemic when we're all sort of sheltered in place. Because maybe that is the thing, like when you're watching a movie, there is something about the thought that all these other people are watching it too, and maybe they're having a similar emotional rise and fall, and that is, you know, connecting. I, it it kind of reminds me how I, I used to listen to the radio late at night and just imagine that like thousands of people were all listening to that exact same song at the exact same moment, you know, or maybe like off by milliseconds or something because of the radio waves, but that felt very... Connecting. I want to pause for one second and say that there's a thing happening in this conversation that is predicting future questions. Mm. I'm just going to say that, and then I will note it when it happens towards the end of the interview. Anyway, Kate, go ahead. Okay. I think, you know, the half of it has a bunch of great scenes of people watching movies together, which was something really nice. It really struck me how infrequently we get to see characters in movies watch movies now. Uh, so I'd love to know what your ideal movie watching setup is. And that can be at home, as we all are right now, or when you go to a theater. Where do you like to sit? What kind of snacks are you eating? Do you like going by yourself? Do you like going with a group of people? Oh, my God. Okay. I, I love these questions. You have no idea. I've been interviewed so many times. This is like my favorite by far. We'll get to the questions about your movie, too. Oh, no, no. That's okay. Like... Let's just talk about this. <laughs> this is amazing. There's people can, can Google do... about the movie. <laughs> get, you a po- get you a podcast that can do both. No, but I love this. Okay, so I'm definitely a theater person. Like I, before the pandemic, and honestly, last year I was shooting my film, so that's different. But if I'm not in production and I'm not, I go to the theater at least twice a week. Like I definitely am a theater person. I can do both, but I'll be totally honest, depending on the movie, I do sometimes prefer to go by myself. Like it takes a very special person that I can go see certain movies with because like that person needs to know that the moment the credits roll, they cannot turn to me and say something or I will want to kill them with my eyes. Like I'm like, here I am, I'm in the dream. Of the-. And then they're like, what did you do? Th-? And I'm like, oh, <laughs> you know, like, like I literally was on a date once where someone did that and I immediately took her off the list of people that I could possibly be with. <laughs> Like, like, this person doesn't understand poetry. Like, we literally just watch this poetic thing for you to not be in the dream of that means. I can't possibly envision, like, anyway, that's it. But that is, like, I will be a little bit like that. Now, that said, it depends. I mean, am I watching, like, I love the movie Girls Trip. I brought three sets of my friends to the theater to watch Girls Trip. Like, that's one where I'm like, let's bring a bunch of people. But for a lot of the films that I love, I really do like to go by myself or with one other, like, trusted person. Um, I like to sit, I like to be in the aisle, sort of in the center on either side, but, like, one where, like, the fewer people I feel around me, the better, basically, but I also want to feel that there are people. I I don't know how to explain that, but that, like, I really like it when there are people in the theater. I just don't want to... yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure. So yeah, I really love that. And I like to sit sort of like just far enough back that my head doesn't have to hurt, like my neck doesn't hurt, but otherwise as close as possible so that the frame, like the, the screen kind of fills up as much of my vision as possible. So a fun flip of that question is, do you have a particularly strange way you've ever seen a movie? We're talking about like in a swimming pool, oh. on a tour bus, Some people have said they are huge airplane movie watchers and airplane movie criers, perhaps more importantly. Yeah, the airplane movie crying thing has come up a bit. Yeah, Jay Ellis actually said that he watched a movie. Someone had a television like underwater in the in their swimming pool, so like they would watch the movie by going underwater at a party when he was in high school. That strikes me as the weirdest I've ever heard. But yeah, we're we're looking for like the the weird cinema culture experiences that people have had. Well, okay, this isn't nearly as sort of cool or deliberate. It's actually a little bit embarrassing. 
But the thought that comes to mind, so, so in other words, that text sounds amazing, like, and curated and, 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 and wonderful. I'm, I'm quite a bit more sort of boring. But one thing that did happen to me once is I was on a plane flying to Taiwan, and I fell asleep with my, this is a long, long time ago, when, you know, you, like, I think my headset was plugged into the armrest, and it happened. Anyway, the, the upshot of it was, like, they only had, like, one big screen in the front for people to watch for a few rows, right? So I fall asleep, I wake up, I'm watching, it's Speed is playing. Basically, Speed had just come out a few months ago. So Speed of Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock is playing. I'm watching it and it's amazing. There's this like train thing happening and like Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock is driving and there's all this stuff happening and there's this amazing classical music scoring the whole thing. And I'm like, this is genius. No one told me speed is this like poetic, poetic film. So I'm like watching it and it's like, and it's like crescendoing and all. I'm like, it's so amazing. And then the train bursts out of a, uh, a wall, a brick wall, bricks go flying. And then the train slowly comes to a stop, but the music keeps going. It's like, and I'm like, that's kind of a weird choice. I'm like, why is the score still going? And it literally took me a full five seconds to realize I was listening to the classical radio channel. And like, even in the middle of the scene, there was like, a moment where like Sandra Bullock turns to say something to Keanu Reeves and he responds and I couldn't hear any dialogue and I remember being like what a brave choice but I guess what they're saying isn't that important like this all like that and it was like I have to amazing. tell you I, I wish I knew what I had been listening to in the moment, but it was sublime. Like, I, I, I almost, to this day, I haven't watched the real speed because I cannot imagine it would surpass that experience. So, yes. Do you was. remember, do you, do you, you don't happen to remember what the, the piece of music was, do you? No, it was literally, because, you know, it was like on, again, this is back in the olden days when they would have right. like nine of those, like, you know, it was like a like, weird Like those like radio dial. channels? Yeah. Yeah, it was just on some random, like their classical Thing. So I don't, and I'm too much of a Philistine to be like, oh yes, this is da da da. It just happened to be what I was listening to. I feel like there's someone could there you could do a thing where you're like taking film and then pairing it with classical music A and B and like as a whole new genre of weird like TikTok mashup. I don't yeah. know. Maybe I'll spend my pandemic doing this. Yeah, there's a great Chuck Klosterman essay about syncing up Kid A with The Matrix. And of course, the classic one is Wizard of Oz and Dark Side of the Moon, which anybody who's ever been stoned in college and done that, wow, what a what a sync up. But I love doing stuff like that. I love when they do the like orchestral scores with movies here in LA, yeah. even if it's not necessarily the score for the movie. Because yeah, you come up with all of these sort of evocative ideas around the movie that you never would have reached. Anyway, I hope you never see the real speed. I hope it just remains oh, in your brain. I won't, yeah. because I'm too scared. I'm all, it'll be, I'll just be bummed. I'm telling you, though, that was amazing. Like, I really wish I could. Yeah, I don't know. I wish I knew what it was. But yeah, no, what a great question. I haven't thought about that in God, a long time. Here's another fun one. What is a terrible movie that you will defend forever? We're talking like less than 25% on Rotten Tomatoes. Okay. The kind of thing that if you bring it up at a dinner party, people are like, ooh. Okay, well, I don't think this is a terrible movie at all. But, and so maybe this is the wrong one to bring up. But a lot of people haven't seen it. And I I love the film. It was for, I guess three is a big number for me. I literally saw this also three times in the theater when it came out. Uh, when I was 25, Tank Girl. I love that movie. I recently saw it again. I made all my friends distantly watch it with me for my birthday. <laughs> and funnily enough, someone just bumped it up and Rachel Talalay, the director, actually wrote to me being... But I, again, I don't. I think that movie is ahead of its time because it still holds up. I, it's like a, but yeah, it's not a terrible movie though, huh? I have to think about. Well, here, here's what I'll say. I just, I just checked the Rotten Tomato score. It is only forty, which is actually surprising to me because I actually have really positive associations with it as well. And I agree with you. It is. I mean, look, it's a movie about like water supply being controlled by a despotic company, like definitely ahead of its time. And I also just think that like a lot of the sort of subtextual sort of gender stuff just wasn't appreciated 25 years ago. Yeah, I, I wanted to have a resurgence and I actually tried to, <laughs> I tried to do so basically for my birthday. It's just like, man, if I could get like a bunch more, but it, it, it uh, it's, it's a great film. Um, I, I'm going to add one more thing 
There are rumors of a remake starring, <gasps> oh. starring, starring I don't know Margaret. if I like that, actually. <laughs> I'm not sure either, but the, the rumor is, is that uh, Margot Robbie's company has optioned the rights to do a remake, and it's unclear whether she will star or not. Mm. I do love Margot Robbie, but... Um. I, am, I was just going to say something. I'm skeptical, but I do like Margot Robbie, and she seems to make consistently good choices. So if anybody's going to try, maybe her? I yeah, anyway. I, I guess it could be. May, I, maybe it, it could work. I just, I love the Gloria Tank Girl for me is how sort of wonderful and sort of like, it just gives no fucks, you know? It's like, whatever, this is what we're doing now. We don't really care what the convention is. <laughs> and I'm like, and I'm on, I'm up for the ride. You know, I don't need it to be neatly tied together. Yeah, I that movie is just... I, I, yes, I guess I will defend that to the death. I got to give an extra moment of shout out for Rachel Talalay, too. She is, to date, the only woman who has ever directed a franchise movie in any of the big horror franchises. So Nightmare on Elm Street, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Friday the 13th, all of those. She directed one of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, and she is the only woman to do so with a major horror franchise in 2020, guys. Oh, man. man. I love that you knew that right off the, like, that. that's impressive. Because Kate... Shout out to my friend Amy, who told me this fun fact this very oh, week. But yeah, that kind of broke my brain. I was like, that's not possible. And then you realize it's absolutely possible, which is honestly a great segue into our next question, which kind of talks about representation on screen. Can you remember, Alice, and you may not have an answer for this. The first time you saw a character that you saw on screen and you were like, that's me. I really relate to this person. This character really resonates with me. Oh, wow. You know, my first thought, I mean, mostly the Asian, Asian characters I saw, I didn't really see hardly any Asian American characters that were fleshed out in a way that it felt like they were intended to be identified with, right? So I saw certainly a lot of Asian characters because I watched a lot of Chinese movies, but I wouldn't necessarily say that, oh, I deeply related there as well. But I, 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 I guess for me, there is, um, <laughs> this is so ridiculous that this is what's coming to mind because I'm sure it's the wrong answer, but because it's just too late in the game. But I, I mean, I guess on one level, you know, when I love a movie, I think our tendency is to identify with the main character, right? So probably if I'm watching Annie Hall, I'm relating to Woody Allen. If I'm watching My Life as a Dog, I'm relating to Ingmar. But the I, thought that comes to mind is I actually think Wally might be my spirit animal, like from the animation, Wally. I loved Wally. The first 40 minutes of Wally. I mean, the rest of it's good too, <laughs> but that first 40 minutes is incredible. Yeah. And maybe there's something about the fact that it's animation and he's like a robot, so then it's not like you can put any cultural attributes you want on him. But I, I, I'm sure later on I'll think of something. But in terms of Asian American, I mean, there are certainly movies that I, you know, obviously I love The Wedding Banquet was revelatory for me. But I can't say that I identify, like, that character felt like me as much as I felt like those dynamics feel familiar. But I think that's, that's why we ask the question, is because it often isn't the cultural attribute that makes you identify with the character, right? Like, you at eight or nine identify with Woody Allen because you were trying to get the girl that you thought was out of your reach. And that's literally exactly what we're... I think Wally is a fascinating answer on, on multiple levels. And I'm certain that Pixar would be very happy to hear you say that. <laughs> I mean, that means they've done their job, right? Like if, yeah. if, a, if a robot is the person that, you identify, that people identify most with, that's literally the goal for them. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. 
For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. So, Alice, you obviously left a life in technology. You, your, your education was in computer science and, uh, wait, what was the undergraduate degree? Did you have a also master's in computer science? science? Yeah, just computer undergrad science. and master's, yeah. Here's a, here's a fun fact. I just looked it up. Rachel Talalay's uh, undergraduate degree was in math. Yeah, at uh, Yale. Which is, I think, at Yale. Princeton, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, it was Yale. Yeah. And she was also head of the Yale Film Society, but um, fascinating overlap. Yeah, she's an idol for me. So, I mean, yeah, fair. Um, definitely underappreciated. And we should probably get her for the podcast, actually. Yes, too, you should. Mention it. She's on my list. All right, good, 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 good. <laughs> um, can you talk about making the transition from a career in technology to being a initially a screenwriter and like how that happened? Sure. I mean, I, I think, you know, again, a, I do think historical context feeds into a lot of things. Like, you know, I, I mentioned I read a lot of books growing up, um, and I still actually believe that if for some weird reason you're like, I want my child to become a filmmaker, I think the thing to do isn't to make them watch a lot of movies. I think the thing to do is make them read a lot of books. Because when you read books, you're forced to visualize everything. And to this day, I, I happen to be a very visual sort of director where I, when I'm writing even, I visualize everything I'm writing. I don't always write it on the page because it slows down the read, right? Like in, for the page, I'm writing for a level of emotional velocity where what I'm trying to do is to get you to just, you know, to sort of suspend what's happening and sort of let the words sort of carry you, hopefully like music. But when it comes to directing, I already know when I'm writing images that I have, and I really think that just comes from a lifetime of reading. Now, that all said, it never occurred to me that I could ever be any sort of, certainly a writer, definitely not a filmmaker. I, I think I knew, and I think this is a very common story, where if your parents are immigrants, like if they come to this country in the hopes of making a better life for you, right? And particularly if they've chosen a country that you know, isn't maybe the most welcoming to that particular group, you know, like, and they have accents that are not like a British accent or like a sexy French accent, right? Like there's, they're basically sacrificing, like my parents could not be like, what should I do? What are my dreams in my life, right? Like their dream is literally to be like survive in this country and provide a better life for their children. And when you see that, and also my parents are wonderful, like when, when I watch how hard they work, I think my generation, our job is to your parents have established a beachhead. Your job is to try and make sure <laughs> that the things beach, are, yeah. yeah, like to be like, okay, we're not going to get like kicked off, you know, and sent back home, you know, like that everyone is financially going to be okay. And, you know, like, so in my head, I just always assumed that like my greatest dream was that financially we were going to be comfortable and no one would have to worry. Right. And if that's the case, like making the risk to take a life in the arts just isn't even in like, it's just not even a thing that you can consider. At that time, I didn't really have any mainstream role models. Like, that, like Amy Tan's Joy Luck Club, as a book, hadn't even come out till, I think, maybe my senior year of college. Um, and yeah. so given that, I, I just never, yeah, it was, it was in my mind. I chose a very practical major. I genuinely actually did love computer programming, so it was... You know, it, it suited me. Um, I personally think directors, it turns out, are the biggest nerds. So it probably makes some sense that, like, I was a big nerd, and then now I'm focused being um, being a nerd in a different uh, vocation. But, yeah, it, it, I spent a good seven years designing software, not writing. And then, sort of long story short, the internet boom happened. I went from working, like, 100 hours a week to working, like, you know, I still had to go to work, but we really had no work to do because no one knew how to monetize the internet. So our, yeah, it was just like meeting after meeting, like these inane meetings that were like, what is our mission statement? It'd be like an hour discussion of, should we put mythic in the mission statement? Like really like idiotic, idiotic things, right? And so I was so bored that I ended up finally taking a writing class, like a night class at the University of Washington that fed into a screenwriting class so it's almost by accident that I ended up in a screenwriting class. 
And I started to be like, well, if I were to write a novel, which I thought someday when I'm retired, maybe I'll write a novel, right? I'm like, well, if I were to do that, and that became what Saving Face, my first film was I ended up writing it as a screenplay in that class. And I wrote the first draft. There's a long story about that that I'm just not going to go into. The upshot is that got written. The uh, teacher actually was like, I was like, this is a disaster. He was like, actually, it's not that terrible. And frankly, I'm kind of interested in optioning the script. And I was like, I don't, what does that even mean? And he basically, you know, in conversation with him, he was really candid about the fact that like, listen, if I managed, like if I optioned your script, it'd be for very little money. And if I went down to Hollywood and sold it, like if I managed to sell it, it's not going to be Asian. It's not going to be gay. Like my, my film has like, is like half in Mandarin Chinese. It's like none of these things will be true. <laughs> like it's probably not even going to get made. It's basically a money play because you have a really great commercial hook and you also have like good writing. Maybe you'll get some writing gigs. And I was like, well, if this thing could get made at all, I have a very specific way of how I want it made. And if I just want to make money, I would just stay in computer science, right? And so he was like, look, you, writers don't really get any respect in the film world and you know like they don't really get a say in how the film's made so if you want to do this you need to quit your job you need to move to New York or LA immediately and you need to learn what it takes to direct this uh, so basically that's what I did I quit my job I moved to Brooklyn I had so this is again another like stroke of luck thing when I chose computer science I didn't realize it was going to turn out to be like the hot career. It was just like, oh, this is a good, solidly middle-class career. But midway right. through my career, it sort of took off, right? So I actually had a nice nest egg that I could draw from. And I bring that up because I, I think there's a reason why we have the kind of stories that we have told, because the reality is filmmaking is expensive. Like trying to yep. be an artist is expensive. So if you don't have somebody or some way to finance yourself, it's very hard to do. And so in my case, I basically was my own patron, right? Like I got lucky that I had the kind of career that managed to give me enough of a nest egg that I was like, all right, I, I can live on $40,000 a year for five years. At the end of five years, I'll still have six to eight months to find a job. And so that's why I took that risk. And yeah, I gave up this job that everyone was like, don't give up that job. And I just was like, I don't, I, I, I think this is my, I just remembered feeling at that time, like, I think this was my last shot to do something crazy. I think it's only going to get harder <laughs> from here if I, you know, wait. And I didn't, I mean, who thought that movie was going to get made 15 years ago? So I did know that the chances of Saving Face getting made were minuscule. I even remember saying this to a friend where I'm like, you know, I, I just don't someday want, like, I would rather my grandchildren say, hey, did you know that grandma did this crazy thing where she went <laughs> off and tried to make a film? Then, yeah, grandma never tried anything, right? Right. And so that was why, and that, that's how it happened. Let's talk about the half of it. Kate, I'm just going to let you start, and then I will chime in with generalized enthusiasm about everything about this movie. Alice, we love this movie. I'm just going to start off by saying that I was so struck by watching it. I watched it last night. It feels like the first teen movie that feels like an actual heir to the sort of classic John Hughes love triangle, big emotions, big speeches, big feelings at the end of the movie. It's really fantastic. And it feels like a riff on those kind of films while simultaneously still feeling super modern, super of today, super about today's kind of teenagers. But I'm curious, what inspired you to write a movie about teenagers, particularly teenagers in present day, considering a lot of teen stuff wants to do the sort of retro lens on things? Mm. No, thank you for saying that. I'll be honest, at the point I was writing the script, because I left the industry 10 years ago to take care of my mom, and I thought I'd left for good. And it wasn't until like three years ago I got pulled back in to write something for DreamWorks Animation. And then after that, I thought, oh, I should write my second film. But even at that moment, I was thinking like, this film will never get made. This is just me writing. I, I write a lot to understand things about the world and myself. And this specific film kind of started like to answer a sort of question for myself about, you know, I, I, we talked a lot in the beginning about movies and what movies formed us. And so many of the movies that I watched, when you look at it, I, I do feel like our, the stories that we imbibe tend to sort of exalt romantic love, right? Like more often than not, there's this sense of once you find this like person you're meant to be with for the rest of your life, your life is complete, right? 
And I think as I get older, um, I think it is wonderful to find someone you want to spend the rest of your life with. But even when that happens, and when I look around at my friends, like who've been are in wonderful marriages and relationships, it really doesn't seem like after they get married that then their life just sort of ends in a crescendo of wonderfulness and nothing more happens. It seems like, and then life keeps going. And thinking about all that made me think about, well, if I really look at my life and I think about the relationships I've had, in particular, if I look at the heartbreaks, like I've certainly had some very, you know, you know, sad, tough heartbreaks romantically. But if I'm very honest, probably a couple of the ones that really were even tougher for me were not romantic at all. Like one was the heartbreak I had with my mom when she had a hard time accepting me as gay. And one, you know, there have been a couple just friendships that were formative for me where no one did anything wrong, but for whatever reasons, you know, it was hard maybe to prioritize that friendship once people do get married. Like, and it's tough because when a friendship sort of, you know, start to, like the intimacy sort of slowly breaks away, like people don't quite know how to even grieve that. Like, you know, like literally if you were to date someone for like six weeks and you really like them, but then you break up, all your friends would be like, oh my God, are you okay? Right. Right. It's like everyone like acts like, but if you're like, yeah, and this friend, like like people are like, yeah, that's sad. And then, but it doesn't quite, you know, which is interesting to me. And the reality is when I think back on when I came out to myself, my senior year of college, um, the person who became my best friend was this straight white guy who is like the last guy, maybe not the last guy, but I would never have occurred to me that he and I were going to become best friends. Like we didn't seem to have, I don't even know if he had any other real people of color friends. And I, most of my friends are people of color. So I just remembered Somehow we just, like, sometimes you meet someone and you just get them and you don't know why. And we'd have these long conversations every day, funnily enough, mostly about love, like how we were going to get love, like how do you keep love, right? And, but as it happens in life, like we were so close, but I don't know that society totally understands where to put that kind of relationship, you know? And because of that, you know, like, what if you meet your soulmate, but you neither of you has any desire to have sex with each other. Like, what is that, right? And so that's been a question that's just been in my head for many years. And I finally sat down to try and write about it. And maybe because I was too close to it, but trying to write about people in their 20s doing that became like a much, it was just this unwieldy story that I couldn't figure out how to end in a movie form. So I, I think maybe that's a TV series. I don't know. But somewhere in there, I thought I should just set this thing in high school. So it was almost like, because I was like in high school, every feeling is huge, right? Like every feeling is like, it's the first time you've had it. You think this is it. Like you love this person. If you don't get them, you're dying. You know, like you will never feel this again. And so you can cover a lot of emotional territory very quickly. But the other thing about high school is that particular time in our lives, I think is so, it's so formative that I, I don't know that we ever fully let go of it. Like, I, I think you could be 80 in a nursing home. And if you had to go ask somebody out, I bet you feel like you're 15, you know, like, yeah. and, and so I think that's the thing where I'm like, okay, I don't actually think with the half of it, I've made a movie. I haven't made a teen movie. I think I've made a movie of teenagers in it. And I think we all sort of still have that teen in ourselves. And so I think different people then relate to the film that way. And towards your question of why not go retro, why set it today? I started writing this after Trump got elected. And I, like many people, was just, I just, it's not like I didn't know like racism and xenophobia and homophobia existed. Like, of course I know. But I genuinely did think that, I think unconsciously I thought we were progressing and that may just come from in my own life. It felt like, you know, being a, a queer person or being an Asian American, it felt like those communities had more of a voice or getting stronger. And as many people, like, I think Aziz Ansari did an amazing job, so bring that up out in the SSNL uh, monologue, that we suddenly were like, wait, there's whole stretches of the country who are like, yeah, we don't hold as a value that we should work on that, right? And I, like, look, I still think, I still think I'm sexist and racist and homophobic, and I'm an old Asian dyke, right? I, I, I'm just working on it, right? Like, I think I'm a lot further than I was when I was growing up. But knowing that made me kind of go like, all right, I, I, I just want to, I don't want to believe that therefore all those people are bad. Like, that's just not a, 
it's not something I believe as a storyteller, and it's fundamentally something I choose not to believe as a human. So if that's the case, I, I think I wanted to set it somewhere and be like, is there a way I can tell the story that's contemporary, but maybe allow me to find some empathy for all the various characters and hopefully in a very subtle way. Like I nowhere in my film do I say this is Trump country, right? But I think the right. the the journey of one of the main characters that I think we sort of fall in love with throughout, and then he breaks our heart in one moment. I you wanted people definitely to see that. fall in love with him. Yeah, it, he. I, I I just want a friendship in my life, like the friendship that that they have. It is literally one of my favorite movie friendships of all time. And I'll be honest, like the first ten minutes, I was like, I don't know if I buy that they're. And then I was just like. Give me a TV show with the two of them, mm -hmm. like after college. Like I just want to watch them hang out. Yeah. Uh, and every moment they're together, even the ones where I was like, ah, like really, they're they're shopping together, and he's like, I got you. Let me get clothes. I have sisters. I was like, yeah, I buy it, hundred yeah. percent. He knows exactly what, what what, and she trusts him to get exactly what she needs. I don't. I I, I really can't say enough about them about those young actors who I had never mm -hmm. seen before. Could you just talk a little bit about making that work? Mm -hmm. Because again, we're talking about like small fictional town, Washington State. You've got uh, the, you know, the love interest for both of them is Latina. You've got a gay immigrant, uh, Chinese American, and, and this white boy who's the second string tight end on the football team. And it all works. It all works. And I don't, fully understand how other than alchemy. So walk us through it. No, I, I'm so glad you said that. I freaking love those kids. I, I love them so much. And so I, I'm very uh, cast, I'm very, very specific during casting. Well, I'm specific during everything, but I think casting, I always say like, listen, I think the film will be forgiving if maybe we didn't get this shot, maybe we didn't get that shot, but if I don't cast this thing right, I don't have a film, right? And I was very adamant about having fresh faces because I really needed people to believe that these characters existed. And up front, I was told, look, if you're not casting some name actors, it's going to be hard for you to market this film. And like, it's just, it's going to have to be a word of mouth hit. And I'm like, I don't care because honestly, if I don't get the casting right on this, I, I truly don't think I get the emotional you know, the sort of oomph that I need yeah. people to have at the end. So I'd rather, feel, I've always been someone who, look, I would rather speak extremely strongly to a smaller group of people than kind of to a huge group of people, right? Like right. I don't see the point in speaking kind of to a huge group of people. So given that I, then, you know, that just holds through throughout. And so for me, I also am not somebody who thinks I'm going to put this in for diversity. Like that never, ever crosses my mind. Right. I genuinely am like, what feels authentic to me here, right? What do I think will tell the story better? So obviously, like with Ellie Chu, I mean, I from a personal level, obviously, I've decided to choose like a Chinese American immigrant. Like that, <laughs> that, that choice just has to do with like that is believable to me for whatever reasons in every white town. There's always one immigrant family. So I decide to tell that story. Now, yep. the character of Aster could just be white. That one is a choice to make her Latinx, but not actually just to be diverse. It's actually because I wanted to very sort of in a more subtle way comment a little bit on the different ways it can be othered, right? Because yep. Aster and her father, they're U.S.-born Latinx. They're not immigrants. But that's very reflective. Like, even though they speak Spanish, that is a Latinx thing where you could be born here and you could still speak some Spanish at home. Like, this does not mean you had to come over from another country, you know, like maybe yep. a couple generations back. But the fact that that particular family can sort of pass, quote unquote, was a way for me to comment on here's Ellie and her father who cannot pass as immigrants. Here's Aster and her family who can sort of pass, but not quite, right? Like their notions of class. And this is a way for me to sort of, in what I think still feels real and possible, you know, allow sort of for a comment on that. But also, I, I mean, I just, I don't know, it felt like something that again, I felt like strengthened the film. And then with Paul, I always, again, with the casting of Daniel, like definitely I got some pressure to cast, you know, some known teen actors. And yeah, I'm sure there's a million teen actors that they would have preferred that you cast, yes. but this kid just crushes it. Right? 
I'm so happy you said that. He's the most unexpectedly likable human being I, I've seen on screen in a very long... Like, oh, you just... So I don't know. There's something very pure about him. Yes. And yeah. honest and, like... Like, look, I grew up in West Central Georgia. I knew kids like this who believed the things that they were told by their parents and, and that they were told in church, but there was no malevolence about them at all, and they were just trying to figure it out. Yeah. And, you know, hey, Ellie, you can, you can write me these letters, like, and then, of course, I'll try to be your friend. And if someone, you know, has a problem with you, they have a problem with me. I, it was just, I, I don't know that I've ever seen that character before. And, and I can say as someone who grew up in a, small, predominantly white environment in the Deep South. I know that guy exists. And that's really, I don't know, I, I, not to focus on the white dude, but he did a great job. No, it was, I mean, they all three did an amazing job, yes, but but since we're talking about Paul, I super agree with you because the thing is this, Paul is the most emotionally intelligent character in the film, right? Despite not being book smart. And I needed him to read as a real kid. Because if I cast him as a Hollywood pretty boy, we're just basically watching like a fun Serenade thing. And then like, you know. 100%. But like when I met Daniel, who I just found out of like, I'm like, what I probably literally like read 500 people for each of those roles. But like, I literally saw his self tape and was like, who is this kid? And I think my casting director is like, oh, he's like not well. I'm like, no, no, no. I want to see this kid, right? And then I met him. And there's something, he, what you just described, that actually is Daniel Deemer. Like, he's genuinely a good, good person, and it shows. Like, and I needed Paul to read us. When you first see him, I can't have you be like, oh, the super handsome guy. Because then you're like, well, this guy doesn't need any help. I kind of need you to be like, who's this kid? And then, like, you're kind of yeah. going along. You're like, okay, this kid's kind of funny. And then after a while, you're like, wait, I'm kind of starting to fall in love with this guy. And it's mirroring Ellie's experience of him, right? Because yeah. I'm tra- the whole time I'm trying to have you experience, like, in, you know, sort of Ellie's journey. And that kind of works only if Paul is the way he is. And, like, he's so much the heart of the film. And I just think, again, all three of them knocked it out of the ballpark. But since we're talking about Paul... Like, Daniel is, uh, he's he's just, I, I can't say enough good things. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really tricky sort of role too, right? Like, we've all seen this kind of jock stereotype in teen movies many times. But to give this character so much nuance, so much emotional depth and intelligence, as you said, it's really surprising and refreshing and I think turns the movie into something really special. Kind of on that same tip in terms of what makes this movie so special, I want to talk a bit about the queer elements in the film. You know, I feel like if this movie came out five or ten years ago, it would very much be a coming out story about Ellie. But instead, it's a much more nuanced and complex take on how she becomes herself and honestly how Aster is sort of coming into her own as well. Um, And I want to ask specifically about the ending. So spoilers (laughs) ahead for anybody who doesn't want to hear this. One of the things I loved about the movie is the teaser and the opening narration about how this is a love story where nobody gets what they want. But there's this beautiful moment of bravery for Ellie when she kisses Aster in a very public fashion. And I just wanted to know how that sort of moment came to you, especially because it's a flip on what we expect from a teen movie where, you know, the cool jock takes the glasses off the nerdy girl and then they kiss and ride off into the sunset together. So I'm just curious how that came to you. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting, right? Like the thing with Serano, usually with Serano adaptations, there's usually one couple you're secretly really rooting for, you know, or maybe not even so secretly. Like sometimes a movie just telegraphs for you. It would be a lot better if this person and this person were together, right? And I think what was tricky for me is because all three characters are so likable, you kind of don't, it's not like, oh, if these two are together, but this person's hurt. What, well, if these two are together, then this person's hurt, right? And I think the whole thing is I, I sort of start off as a Serano, but midway through, I actually kind of go off the rails of what Serano does. And it's sort of, you know, it's kind of like I subtly, it sort of becomes its own thing. 
And I kind of knew as I was like thinking about it and thinking about it, I was like, it just doesn't feel right for me to be like, let's say we say Ellie and Astor are together, right? Is that truly the happiest thing that could happen? Like these two seven, these kids are 17, right? Like they're together and they're stuck in this like terrible town. Like there's like a moment of like, hooray, but then what, right? Like you can't tell me that that is like the best thing that could happen. Like it feels like a momentary happiness followed by almost like the, the end of the graduate where you're like, now what the fuck, right? Like, and so I, for me, I really was thinking about it. I'm like, you know, it's like I'm teasing you in with this idea of finding the other half. These three are all so consumed with like, okay, we got to get the girl, you know, like, but really at the end, the point isn't finding your other half. The point is who the people that you end up connecting with, because all three of these people end up connecting with each other in very sort of profound ways. And it's like in their collision, each of the three ends up finding out something about themselves that allows them to take the next step, right? That like the next sort of brave, bold stroke in their life that allows them to really start their life, which I think when you're 17, like that is the happiest thing. If you sort of see like, oh, now they're going to become the people they really were always meant to be, right? And I think for me, this journey is so much about, you know, certainly for Ellie, right? Like that it's not about whether she gets Aster or not. It turns out it's about Aster having, I'm sorry, about Ellie finally, like in a lot of ways, it's about a girl who doesn't really understand how to define love, who constantly is like writing other people's papers, but is constantly using other people's words to describe love, right? And so those are the quotes. By the end, she finally, however messily it comes up, uses her own words to describe love. Like she's finally starting to use her own words. And that she finally ends up taking the step to go off and start, you know, like actually having a, a future. And for Paul, like he loves living in Squamish, but him finally being able to like speak up in his family and actually take it in, like get the respect of his family to be able to, you know, like actually, by the way, taco sausage, which I'm not going to lie. When I came up with that idea, I was like, I don't know what's going to happen in this script. Taco sausage is a big winner. So at the moment, the fact that it's starting to like become a thing is like super crazy exciting to me. But that's a separate thing. Available now from the Koji Barbecue taco truck. I, I saw on Twitter, taco sausage is real, y'all. It is possible to get it if you were in L.A. I, I'm going to figure it out before the end of the week. No, you can get delivered you. may not be available you're going to do great. Done. It's going to happen. <laughs> you may not be able, you may not be able to by the time this episode airs, but I encourage everybody. It's, so did you know, like when you thought about it or when you think about it now, were you like, yeah, it totally makes sense that taco sausage became a thing? Because the second I heard it in the, in the movie, I was like, in a non-pandemic environment, 100% taco sausage would have been the thing that would have been served at the premiere party and everybody would have been talking about the next day. Oh, no. I thought taco sausage was more likely to become a thing than my film was going to become a thing. I No, I no joke. <laughs> like, I literally, when I came up with that idea, I'm like writing along. I came up with the idea. I got so excited. I went, I have a writer's office at the Grotto in San Francisco. I went into the kitchen, literally randomly talked to someone I'd never spoken before, another writer being like, I just came up with this incredible idea. And I literally said, I really don't know what's going to happen with my script, but taco sausage is going like, this is like a brilliant idea. And I was just totally convinced. And so when, when Netflix is like, okay, we're going to promo it. I literally was like bugging them all the time. Like taco sausage, taco sausage, taco sausage. And they were very good humored about it, but <laughs> it sort of is starting to get some traction now. I'm fully convinced. Like I tried a year ago, I tried to convince like a friend of mine had a sister who's a chef I'm like she should do talk like I don't know I, I'm like weirdly I just yeah love that you're you're uh, you are Ellie Chu but you are also Paul yeah oh yes um you're like someone should be making taco sausage just make sure Roy <laughs> cuts you in on that like if he makes a billion on taco sausage like like there better be a check in your mailbox that's all I, I'm gonna you know say. what if I feel like taco sausage appeared in the world because of me that is fine like that that's is a, literally gonna be my finest no, legacy no no <laughs> yes but make sure you get paid for that legacy too yeah, probably. I, I I bow at the I bow at the altar of Roy Choi. So you know what? Happy for him to uh, same. Yeah, same. It's great, and it's great for him that he has your brilliant idea. And I'm just going to say that you should also benefit from it financially. You anyway, should get 10% of it. On, you, you talk to Roy. I will I'll give you 10% of whatever I got. I will hype I the hell out of it. All right, I'll hype the hell okay. out of it. Selling a little or a lot? 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. All right, we're going to we're going to ask now about Asian American Hollywood storytelling. Mm. Kate, take it away. Yeah, so according to my research and please feel free to correct me if this is incorrect, but Saving Face was only the second ever sort of Hollywood movie with a primarily Chinese American cast following the Joy Luck Club. 2 years ago, we had Crazy Rich Asians which sort of reignited the conversation around representations of Asian Americans in cinema. And since we've had movies like Tiger Tail to both of the to all the boys I've ever loved before movies and now the half of it. What lasting lessons do you hope that Hollywood is going to take from this wave of Asian American storytelling? Oh, wow. So I'll be totally honest and say, because I left the industry 10 years ago, for me, I, I only have, it's like I have two data points separated by 15 years. And I try not to sort of wax on about things that I couldn't possibly know anything about. So you guys probably being in the trenches know more than me. But what I hope is, like, I love The Farewell. I love, you know, I love Crazy Rich Asians. I love that we're all such different storytellers. And my hope is, and and I guess maybe I feel this way because I've met some younger filmmakers who are coming up, right? I, I guess 15 years ago, it just didn't feel like there was a critical mass either of people who were in the industry saying there's an appetite for these sorts of stories or in terms of all these like Asian, there were Asian American filmmakers certainly, but there didn't seem to be as many as there are now. And that's really exciting to me. Right. So I'm not even sure if Hollywood needs to take any lessons because I think it's just going to happen. Like I, I kind of feel like it's not, I don't know that anyone needs to ask permission anymore. I think it's more like, I think people are just going to make it happen. And I think that because there are more outlets for people to be able to tell their stories and there's more ways, like frankly, in this pandemic, like a few months ago, Netflix called me up to be like, the movie turned out well, we're giving you a theatrical, right? And I was all excited about that. That obviously didn't happen. But the thing I've been amazed by because 15 years ago, there was no social media. And so we did a very, tra- Sony Classics right. released it. Like it was very traditional release. And this time around, they were also going to do like, you know, they were going to do press screenings and community screenings, which we couldn't do. But this time, because there is Twitter and there is Instagram, I've been shocked how how you can really mobilize a fan base all over the world. And knowing that, it's like, well, then somebody else could figure out how to harness that. You know, you don't always need so many middle people. And knowing that you can cut out a lot of those middle people, I, again, I'm so excited about, like, I've met some, you know, I just met some, uh, uh, I mean, just because I'm older, so I hope this doesn't sound condescending, but I would say like a younger generation, you know, that 
I just feel like we're going to hear a lot from them. And I, yeah, I, I, I'm excited to see what happens. I kind of love that answer because really the core of it is like, y'all don't need to learn anything, just try to keep up. Yeah. It's kind of my answer too when people ask me about this because it's true. Like, we're going to keep making amazing stuff and audiences are going to watch it and we have our own way to market it because we all want to see this stuff. So, you know, get on the train. It's going places. All right. So speed round to the end. Oh. Four questions. Oh God. This so is where pressure. everything from the beginning comes back. Oh, God. We love narrative. <laughs> So you mentioned Tootsie as what your favorite movie at the beginning of the conversation. This is a question we ask everybody. It is literally called the Sidney Pollack question. You also specifically mentioned that you don't really do violence, and so you watch a lot of love stories. This is literally our question. Sidney Pollack has, has said that uh, he's only interested in making movies about two subjects, love and war, because they are the only two things that we have no greater understanding in humankind of over thousands of years. What is your favorite movie about love? What is your favorite movie about war? Oh, my God. Oh, oh no. <laughs> my favorite movie about love. That's like so that's like that's. That my, my brain is literally short-circuiting as we're talking. I, I, I don't think I can be like, this is my favorite movie about love, but I can... I can Fair. I, yeah, favorites are hard. You can, just, like, you can also just cite, like, these are the ones that come to mind for me right now, right? Okay. But we're not going to hold you to it. If we hear on another podcast that you say another favorite, there won't, there's not a police force. I know, there won't be podcast beef. Like I'm yeah. going to be, like, forever, like, I... You know, it's so tough because you know what comes to mind and it's not even what I think would be the answer I'd normally give, but the reason I'm giving it is anytime I've had a devastating heartbreak, I will at some point watch this movie. So it's not my, like, I, there are other movies I love for the craft for, and this movie actually I will admit, I love it, but I will admit it's dated, but it has like the best ending ever, Defending Your Life by Albert Brooks. Oh, yeah. great answer. Yeah. I Love literally, yeah. I own the movie. I listen to the soundtrack. But that ending for me is, you know, it's just, it's, it's exactly what I'd want to be able to do in a film is make somebody at the end of the film feel like there's something they're connected to that's bigger than them. Like literally, it's just that, you know? So I guess I would say that one. And then war. Oh, good Lord. I don't, I don't watch a lot of war movies. <laughs> this is terrible. I mean, the one That's that comes to mind that I love is Children of Men. I love yep. Children of Men. Love Again, it. another love ending, it. very different kind of ending. But that ending, that's the one I cite for when, like, I don't need a happy ending. I mean, clearly, like, my, this, the half of it doesn't end in a traditionally happy way. But I do need a sense of hope. And I think Children of Men, like, has this ending that's unlike anything I've ever seen, where, spoiler alert for anyone who's not seen it, you should see it, A. It, it, having this, like, grown man helping a young woman figure out how to burp her, like, how to pat her baby and burp her baby is literally, like, I got chills because in no other context would it make sense except this context they've set up in the film. And seeing this man, sort of the, the sheer joy of him feeling the humanity of that, it just, I don't know, it really moved me. So I'd say, I'd say that one. It's a great answer. I'm going to take us home with our final two questions, the first of which is, what is the image from movies that has stayed with you the longest? That can be a single shot. It can be an edit. It can be, you know, a particular frame. Just those kind of images that have stayed with you for your entire life. Oh, no. These are, they're all, because I will say this one funny thing is that in my film, I decided to play a Serrano game myself where subtly I actually pay homage to some of my favorite films like throughout the half of it and I'm just waiting to see who's going to figure that out but I mean it's so hard because some of these are really trite like obviously The Graduate like while I have some problems with the way The Graduate portrays women now when I watch it it's compositionally it's stunning it's like one of the most compositionally beautiful films so certainly the last shot of the graduate always stays with me there are all these because then there's like shots in my life as a dog where that that strike me there are shots in yeah I, I think I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with that one Oh, Wings of Desire. Sorry. This is terrible. Yeah, I was actually surprised we did not get a mention of Wings of Desire in this conversation so far. I'm glad we came back no, to it. No, I am obsessed um, with Wings that of Desire. That was one where I was like, yeah, she's a fan. That's why yeah. that's here. Actually, Bruno Gans like, passed <laughs> away when we were in 
pre-production and I pay, and so did Agnes Varda. And so this is super dumb, but in the, we get, when we first cut to the high school in the opening sequence and there's graffiti on the wall, there's like a part where there's two initials. It's BG plus AV. That's Bruno Gantz and Agnes Varda. It's like my subtle nod to them. I I was wondering what that symbolized. And now we know. Love everything about that. That's amazing. All right. Final question. Which, again, going to this idea of communal movie watching, which is weirdly enabled by Netflix. This is not a paid ad from Netflix, but it's true. (laughs) What is the one movie, if you could do a simultaneous screening for the entirety of planet Earth, that you could show everybody if you could pick a movie to show the world? Hmm. (laughs) Sorry, again, I think I'm short-circuiting. And I'm also thinking about, like, what movies can I suggest that I have not already suggested? You can return to one you've already suggested. Like, we, we literally have spent time talking about your favorite, so there's, there's no shame in that at all. Because why my brain is, is because I feel like there's some wonderful films out there that people know about. And so then I'm trying to think of like, what can I signal boost that people might not know about? I mean, okay, this is, again, I don't know why this is what comes to mind, but it's a movie I really loved, The Lives of Others. Oh, that's a really interesting one. I love it. Mm -hmm. I love anything that forces a POV shift and you sort of plays with the whole notion of watching and what that looks like to an audience. Yeah, that's one that I don't know if enough people have seen, despite the fact it won an Oscar for foreign language that year. Yeah. But I remember being in a movie theater for some reason. It was like I was there with three people. But it's it's another one that that ending is sublime. But um, Mm -hmm. that was another one where I came out of that feeling feeling so inspired to, you know, make film and feeling like someday I want to, I, I, that, you know, I'm going to fail, but those are the heights I'm aspiring to. Florian Hinkle von Donnersmark, tallest filmmaker in the game. He's literally like almost seven feet Good tall. Lord. That's not an exaggeration. And has Man. one of the longest names in the game as well. <laughs> anyway, Alice, thank you so much. Thanks, Alice. This was great. We took up a lot more of your time than I think we anticipated because this was a super fun conversation. I can't thank you guys enough. This was like the best. I love talking to you. And thank you for being so generous with me, with your time, and being so thoughtful of your questions. That's what we do. From Luminary, the Blacklist podcast is a production of The Blacklist and Ninth Planet Audio. Our executive producers are Franklin Leonard, Kate Hagan, Hans Zani, and Jimmy Miller. Gabrielle Horton is our lead producer. Nicholas Pertel composed our theme music. And this episode was edited and mixed by Kevin Liu. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at thathagengirl, T-H-A-T-H-A-G-E-N-G-R-R-L. You can find Franklin on Twitter at Franklin Leonard and on Instagram at Franklin J. Leonard. And you can find The Blacklist on both Twitter and Instagram at The Blacklist, T-H-E-B-L-C-K-L-S-T.